Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Folks, a quick reminder, there is a discount code that has been added to... Um, the Hellion website since the time of recording specifically for this episode. If you've been fascinated by Gary's research and want to find out a little more, why not head over to hellion.co.uk, select Glory is Fleeting, the relevant book in which you'll find the chapter that Gary has based all of this podcast upon, and you'll be able to enjoy 20% off if you use the discount code GLORY23, G-L-O-R-Y-2-3. It only works via the Hellion website, so you do need to buy it direct. Go to hellion.co.uk, type in Glory is Fleeting, and then use the discount code GLORY23, G-L-O-R-Y-2-3, to enjoy 20% off. Enjoy. Hello and welcome back to part two of what was a fantastic instalment on the French perspective of the Battle of Salamanca. I am joined once again by Gary Wills here on the Napoleonic Wars pod. In case you've forgotten, Gary is the author of Wellington's First Battle, The Men Behind the Memorial, Wellington at Bay and Throwing Thunderbolts. The latter is on the War of the First Coalition 1792-7. to But today we are talking or rather continuing the conversation, on Gary's work on McCune at Salamanca. If you haven't listened to part one, you're going to need to go and listen to part one, partly because it's really eye-opening, um, and you can kind of hear the historical cogs at work in certainly my brain as I try and sort of work out the implications of all of this. Um, but also part two won't make any sense if you don't go and listen to part one. So go listen to part one. Um, and then come back for this one. Gary, great to see you again. Thank you for sticking with it for what's going to be an extended recording session from the looks of things. Um, let's let's dive straight back into this. Um, so we were just talking about the whole Marmont's about to ride off and inverted commas save the day and is sort of laying the blame very squarely at McCune's feet, certainly in his memoir, written a long time after the event, we should say. Um, 
I'm skeptical about some of that, but you know, you've made the the important point that actually, perhaps Marmont is is somebody who, and French commanders generally are the sorts of people who would actually just kind of get their backsides over there and say, "Look, this is exactly what I want you to do." Uh, more kind of Wellingtonian in style, Wellingtonian in style there. Um, but of course, that's not what happens um, for for Marmont. Uh, he gets wounded. So, what does McCune? actually physically do during all of this you know let's let's just park all of the the supposition and, and all of the misconceptions and the conflicting evidence what do we know about what the heck McCune's division actually end up doing when they well, have to face Leith what we know is that McCune sent his is um uh so a step back McCune organizes division into two brigades one behind the other he sent his skirmishers forward uh, towards Arapalais village, um, which, uh, to a certain extent, uh, which is is known because we know what the British uh, uh, said, um, and uh, so it, to a certain extent uh, contradicts Marmont's memoirs, which implies that uh, McCune had sent the whole division down towards. Uh, um uh, uh towards the village um what what is is up for grabs is exactly where that conflict between Leith and McCune took place as we said in the first episode uh Oman has it taking place to the south west of um uh the uh the, the village of Arapalais. the i think there's a very strong case that he was actually to the south east of the village. And um, if we go back to, and we remember what um, Marmont said, that he wanted McCune on the extreme right end of the uh, tablelands. And, uh, and so here I positioned him in a different position. Uh, it, I think McCune's role in this was to be the hinge, uh, part of the hinge on which uh, Tom Yez and Tarpan's divisions deployed behind him. And so he approached uh, not on the from the north-south north axis, but I believe on the, uh, uh, on the southeast to northeast. This has a number of advantages to think about it. One is that there are these ridgelines, and if you look at them using the Spanish geographic um, uh, mapping system, you can see these ridgelines quite clearly. And it allows you to position uh, McCune's division consistent with some of the descriptions that we've got. So we know the artillery was further back than the infantry, um, which, by the way, if it was where Oman uh, said it was, the artillery would have been the other side of the hill. Um, and it gives us uh, positions on which uh, McCune's volunteers could advance towards. Um, the, so that works. The, the other thing that works really well with this is that um, uh, later in the day, uh, Leith's, after Leith has attacked uh, and beaten McCune, uh, Spry's Portuguese division is sucked off by uh, to the to the left by uh, Beresford to help out uh, repelling the French counterattack uh, 
Now, if McCune was where Oman had him, they would have been, you know, a good part of a mile away when they did that 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 march. Spry's after action report said his men virtually had to just turn left and march off. They they had no distance to cover. So I think there's a very strong case built up of lots of weak signals that McCune was positioned here on this intermediate uh, piece of land, which I highlighted on Oman's map in the last episode, not on the Monte de Zan, as Oman would have it. And it makes uh, a lot of sense in a number of ways. If we, uh, if we look at uh, the rest of the divisions and uh, are around um, uh, McCune at this time, uh, you have Tommy Ayres' division being hurried towards him, uh, towards his open flank, and you have uh, Talpan and Clausel behind him. And I think the um, uh, you can understand here where um, uh, the, where, how the cavalry attack on uh, McCune would have played out. Interestingly, the... Um, uh, the, the other piece of evidence which I think goes this way is if you compare the accounts of Wallace's brigade with Leaf's division, they don't mix. They, they contact one another, but they don't mix. If Leith had been attacking south across the Monte Dizan, pushing McCune out of the way, he would have run big time into, uh, into Wallace's brigade, and they didn't. And um, so for me, it's, it's, it's a fairly strong case. I think when you think about did McCune go too close to um, uh, the Arapiles village? Well, yeah, if it had stood a bit further back, um, he wouldn't have been as vulnerable to the attack by Leith and the cavalry as uh, standing where I, I've put him here. Um, uh, but you... you um, you, you've got a much more coherent battle line. And as I say, the other thing that that makes sense with this is that Talpan's leading the 6th Division, whose job was to fill the gap between the 7th Division and the 5th Division. So it's quite sensible that McCune would stay where he was. And uh, it would be he was embarrassed by the British cavalry because Talpan hadn't got to secure his, his left flank. Folks, I'm going to urge you, if you're listening to this on the radio um, version, to head over to the YouTube channel and take a look at the maps that are going in to support this, because it does help massively to, to not put too fine a point in it. Um, and I'm looking at this and I'm seeing a lot of logic in what Gary is saying, um, because as... You've always got to think about these guys as thinking people. Don't just assume that they're dumb and they've got to the, the these places where they have in life by chance. And if you're McCune and you're standing there facing north as Leith comes at you, you would know that your left flank would be absolutely wide open. Because you know that Tommy is somewhere over there, but you can't see him. There's no there's no form of contact between the two because he's all the way at the other end of the Monte de Zan. 
and we know he's at the other end of the Monte de Zan because we know from the British accounts of where they make contact with Tommy Air's men. So what that therefore means is that we're having to believe that McCune is happy to just leave that left flank waving in the air whilst Topan comes along and fills it whenever he deigns to. And instead, with what Gary's put on this map, actually, by no means is his left flank secure, but it's not quite as cruelly exposed as it might otherwise have been. Because, as Gary said, you know, in this version, you have McCune facing, uh, what would this be, northwest, um, which has a, a deal of sense to it. So there you go. Head over to the the YouTube channel um, to try and um, see this for yourself, because there's no sense in me just trying to sort of describe it and, and visualize it for you. Um, I think the the um, the other thing about this positioning is it. it the, one of the questions I posed at the beginning is how did McCune get away from uh, what was a very serious attack? He was attacked. Uh, by Leith from the front, uh, a very serious attack. Dano, the brigade commander of the first uh, uh, first brigade, was was wounded and in fact captured. Um, I think three of the four battalion uh, leaders were wounded or killed. Uh, one of the battalions was being led by a captain uh, in that first brigade. It was a massive attack. Um, and so the question is, how did they, how did they, um, how did they survive? And I think when you look at it in this position, as uh, McCune's division breaks under the combined assault of uh, uh, Leith and Le Marchand, what happens is they run into uh, the divisions behind them, uh, Talpan and Clausel. So there's thousands and thousands of soldiers there. there. There aren't that many British cavalry. So even though it was a very effective charge, um, there's still the opportunity for uh, certainly Monfort's brigade to get away uh, without too, much, uh, too many casualties. And yeah, Darnold's uh, uh, brigade was very badly affected, as we said earlier on. Um, but you can see how they could have escaped if they're in this position at the end of the uh, uh, of the tableland before Monte Design, rather than a mile down the road uh, towards Tomiers. This is really interesting, um... and, and this this just makes the point that um, you know the sixth division should be between the fifth and seventh, and it hadn't got there when this all happened. No, it really hadn't, had it? No. Do we know why Topin is so... Uh, I was going to be mean and say slow, which uh, is is uh, perhaps unnecessarily unkind of me, but, I mean, Topin's not where he should be by any measure. Do we know why? I should, I should imagine the fault is more with Tommy Ayres. You know, the, the ground is, is, is fairly broken that they've come over. I should imagine the thing that makes it look odd is Tommy is so far advanced, so far ahead of the rest of the divisions. Uh, and you could argue that 
you know, McCune is just, a, you know, a few hundred yards too close to the uh, rapid. With hindsight, he might have stopped at the ridge before, rather than the ridge he's put his artillery on, rather than the one I've got him stopped at. Um, I don't think he was further down because the British are fairly clear that it was only um, his Voltigeurs that were on the forward slopes. They they say that that Darnold, uh, McCune's men, Darnold's men, were still on the on the high ground, uh, which is why I've put them where I have. <clears throat> okay, so at this point, shall we? I'm I'm still digesting this. Um, it's a really interesting concept. Um, I need to get back out there and have another look at the land and see this for myself. Because inevitably you go there with the received opinion in your your mind. And so you look at it and try and sort of work it out that way. But you're in the process, actually, you end up not reading other aspects of the landscape. And yes, uh, particularly because, I mean, I've stood on the top of the uh, Greater Arapel and, you know, and looked across, took photographs uh, and all of that. But actually the thing to remember is a guy's only, only, uh, uh, six, five foot five inches high at this time. So you don't have to have a great ridge uh, for it, to, you know, for it to be a position. So these little ridgelets um, are equally useful uh, positions uh, for him to line up on, and and are more importantly, are consistent with the with the um, the accounts that the British uh, have left us. And there's also a point to be made that none of, no feature on the battlefield of Waterloo is anywhere near as significant as the majority of the features that you see on the Salamanca battlefield. You know, in terms of how deep the valleys are and how high the ridges are, no, they're not Himalayan. Of course they're not, but they are still higher and more significant than what you see today at Mont Saint-Jean. And even if you allow for, okay, the heights have dropped because of farming and erosion and the rest of it. So has also that's also been the case at, at Salamanca. Um, so you can't um, you can't win the argument that way. This is this is really interesting. Shall we move on to talk about ferry? Yes. At this point. Um, so 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 my uh, my contention is that yeah, uh, there's no question that Leith and Le Marchand uh, defeated and broke McCune's division. The, even the French accounts say that. Uh, I think they were protected because they ran through the other supporting divisions, and that's why they didn't get more, more extreme, more beaten up. But the point I made earlier there then comes into play. This happened at five o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, the rear guard uh, took place uh, five hours later, and that gave time. Uh, and uh, for Clausel, who was the eventual commander of the army, to rally the remainder of the left wing uh, of, of the French army. And the early French accounts in the 1830s all make this point that uh, Clausel collected together uh, uh, units from the left wing on the, uh, on the position that ferry eventually defended uh, so I, I know i'm you know forgive me I, I i've not studied the the french counterattacks and all of that but uh, so i'm jumping ahead in the battle yeah. 
So let me just kind of add a little tiny bit of context for folks who haven't listened to other episodes on Salamanca. So what effectively happens, folks, is um, Wellington's attack goes in a, a series of phases and it's meant to sort of almost ripple across the French position. Third Division uh, effectively ends up taking on Tomier. Fifth Division Leiths ends up taking on uh, McCunes. So Fifth Division versus Fifth Division in this case. Um, and then the fourth division, which is the weakest division of Wellington's forces, ends up trying to break. Um, oh Lord, is it Clausel or Bonnet's division? Um, oh, that's a that's a faux pas on my part. Uh, we'll leave this in the final edit. Um, <laughs> you got any thoughts, Gary? Is it Clausel or is it? Because they, they both, both end up. They both ended up getting uh, a really hard time. Yeah, didn't they? Um, so, yes, w- one way or another. Oh, that's going to bug me all day. Um, I think it's Clausel. I think it's Clausel's division ends up being attacked by 4th Division, fends them off, um, and then follows up. And it doesn't um, go well because Wellington has the reserves there in the form of 6th Division. He just sends them forward. They then break the French counterattack. Um, and then with um, effectively French left and French centre having been beaten, um, there's there's not a vast amount left for the French to do other than to start trying to salvage things from the situation. And so the Greater Arapal is abandoned by the 120th Lean, which is in Bonnet's division, um, and they um, they pull back effectively. This and and so we get to. The final stand. Um, over to you, I guess, Gary. Yeah, just just before we move on to Ferry, I, I skipped over this slide earlier on, so I, I really need to bring it back. Is this is the pinned tweet on my uh, on my uh, Twitter, and Professor Muir uh, kindly wrote, "Just finished reading Gary Wills's uh, account of McCoon's division at the Battle of Salamanca in glorious fleeting." full of interesting new information and a very plausible argument about the access of Leith's attack southwest rather than south. So uh, can't say any more than that. And this is why I have so much love for Rory, because he is always open to fresh ideas. And, uh, you know, some of your work is inevitably going to fly in the face of some of his work. Does he turn around and go, oh, no, that can't possibly be the case. You know, I've written a book on Salamanca and I'm Rory Muir. Couldn't be less like the guy to come out with something like that wouldn't even occur to him here's some decent evidence here's a plausible argument and goes this is really interesting people go read it and judge for yourself um and he gave me some stuff uh for the bit on ferry that i'm about to talk to um so the 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 classic account of of ferry's uh defense is the um his division was left all alone everybody else had run off uh, and we have this from a French uh, eyewitness. Um, and the, the, the classical description, and I'll show it in this map, the ferry deployed his battalions in line, in a single line. The ones on the end were in square, which shortens their line. And um, and that's, that's a great description. Um, the guy who described it was only a captain at the time, so... Easy for him not to know what else was going on on the battlefield was my contention. The thing that's really interesting is when you put that up against what the British did. So they sent uh, Clinton's division um, 
uh, to attack Ferry. But on his left, he had Cole's division and Leith's division, now commanded by Pringle, was on his right. Now, when you, when you work out what frontages those divisions would have had, um, even allowing for um, uh, casualties, uh, there's no way Ferry could have held them off. Not for the length of time that is said uh, in the accounts on his own, because this was a ferocious battle. But also, uh, it, it, you wouldn't need to. Wellington wouldn't allow it. Why, why would you send in what, what we're looking at here? Basically three divisions hmm. to, to deal with one French division. This is the army that has literally just shattered multiple French divisions one-on-one. -on -one. You wouldn't need to... There's, there's nothing unique about Ferry's division. They're not suddenly made up of superhuman individuals. You'd send so, one division to do the job. It doesn't make sense. It always has struck me as overkill. Yeah, so it only makes sense if the French had other units there. And uh, I think there's at least a case that part of McCune's division was there. And... Uh, and I'll come back to that when we talk about flags, because uh, the 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 eleventh foot captured uh, a green flag uh, during this part of the action, and uh, uh, that in itself is interesting. Um, not many people have asked the question as to what that green flag was, and and that's one of the things I want to come on to. So my my uh, my argument is that. Other regiments, uh, according to the early French accounts, were on that ridge defending against those three British divisions, holding the line for the rest of the army to get away. And I think McCune's uh, um, battalions are at least as likely as any others to be part of that, particularly um, the, uh, uh, the, the second brigade. But I also think some of the first brigade. Let me talk about timings with you here. So we've had the the fourth British fourth division, Allied fourth division. Apologies um, to Portuguese and Spanish listeners, not to um, disparage against the contribution of of uh, particularly Portuguese troops during this battle. So the Allied fourth division breaks. Is that the Allies then have to face a counterattack in the centre? Sixth division plugs the gap, breaks the counterattack. What time have we got to? Once the Great Arab has been abandoned, this this final stand of Ferry plus, as you know, as we're discussing, it seems increasingly plausible yeah. plus others. Um, what kind of time have we got to in terms of making all of that happen? Because the distances aren't vast, but it still takes time to stop yeah. your men. You've got to reorganize, make sure that the um, the holes are plugged in in your individual battalions, lines, and all the rest of it close up and all of that. Where both, have we got to? Both accounts on uh, on both sorry accounts on both sides talk about this happening in uh, ending in darkness, and the French were allowed to slip away because it had already got dark. Mm. Now, when you look at you know the uh, when that is, you're talking after ten o'clock, eleven o'clock at night. Uh, so the the fighting will have taken place in dusk, and uh, you know it's a good five hours after. McCune and the 40,000 men have been defeated in 40 minutes. So that gives loads of time for McCune um, uh, particularly uh, to uh, bring his division back into order. 
if it's gone away. It does. Um, and it also, because there's another point here about Wellington and the British. Why would they wait this long to attack a solitary French division making a stand to try and cover a rearguard? Yes, you've got to allow the time to reorganise, but it doesn't take five hours to get from, even if you're walking it, folks, rather than driving it, it doesn't take five hours to march from the the village of Los Arapiles, or however you pronounce it, apologies, Spanish listeners, to the position of, of Ferry's last stand. Um, two, maybe. Sure, these guys are under fire and all the rest of it, but um, even two is being generous. Well, the calculation I did had, uh, if McCune had run all the way and his guys had, in fact, if they'd marched, so if they'd marched all the way uh, at regulation marching speed, they would have been at Albert de Tormes at half past seven in the evening. Okay. Well, that that in itself says a lot, right? Because it's still going on after dark. Exactly. And the British aren't just going to sort of stand around. And I know people love a cliche about us Brits, but we don't just sort of sit down and have a cup of tea as soon as the fighting peters out. If there wasn't a something stops the British from pressing on. That can only be not only a large body of troops, but a large body of well-formed troops, because broken troops would be harried by either infantry or the light cavalry um that you know there's an opportunity here so this is uh, uh, granted it's circumstantial evidence but logic indicates that this wasn't a cakewalk once um third and, and fifth division had had broken Tomier and McCune yeah whatever you whatever happens and and you know I said at the beginning this is all weak signals uh the one thing you can be pretty sure of is ferry would not have lasted five minutes on that ridge alone with leith turning it you know with pringles uh now pringles division uh outflanking him on that side because pringles closer to albert de Tormes than he is so um you know something more went on there and the you know to be fair the french accounts in the 1830s are all clear that clausel rallied the divisions of the French left to help the, the rearguard action. And um, uh, and it, it goes on to uh, the point I made earlier on, is that Girard has McCune on the bridge at Albert Saunders uh, after dark, the last senior general there, because obviously Ferry's dead. And, uh, you know, you, you can disbelieve that if you like, but I tend to believe it. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So interesting what happens when you look again hard at the sources. Okay, you mentioned flags earlier. Let's let's bring the, the business of this green flag in. What does the green flag signify? Well, I'll, I'll come to that. Let, oh, there's more. Let's, let's talk about the eagles. Okay, uh, this is a, a naughty little problem. Um, yeah, the, So in Wellington's dispatch, he talks about um, two eagles and six colours being taken. Now, this uh, picture I'm showing is in the Royal Collection, and uh, I couldn't afford to publish it in my book, so I didn't, <laughs> in my chapter, so I didn't. So, uh, uh, But what it clearly shows is the eagle of the 22nd and the, an, another eagle, which doesn't have a number on the caisson, which causes confusion later. Um it also shows, and uh, perhaps I'll, yeah, I've tried to pick these out. The other thing it shows are the banderoles of the of the two regiments, the twenty second linear on the left, one's red and one's white, and of the sixty second linear on the right, one's um, red and one's white, and we therefore can identify the eagle as being the eagle of the 62nd because it says so on the banderole. And uh, we know from um, letters in Pringle's uh, um, archives uh, in Manchester, uh, which I think have just been published by Gareth, uh, that uh, it was the combined light companies of um uh, of Leith's brigade, uh, Leith's division that captured the eagle of the 62nd, and they specifically mentioned the 62nd. So uh, we'll come back to those in a minute. But the other thing they show is uh, in the, behind them at the back on the on the right is a fanion of an un, unknown uh, regiment. A battalion, rather. So just and, explain to folks what a fanion is. Right. So Oman does actually talk about this, uh, but it's more controversial than he thought. Uh, when Napoleon uh, took the eagles off of the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th and 6th uh, battalions, what he wanted was them to, be, to carry a plain um, uh, flag with no decoration. And uh, this... There was a hiatus for some time while they decided what the design should be. But in the early part of 1812, a decree was published which said what they should carry, which were these completely plain flags um, with, on, with spear points, just as you see in this drawing. Um, and the second battalions would carry a white one and the 5th Battalions would carry a green one. And it was important that these uh, flags had nothing on them because they were supposed to be of limited value. And, um, and the thing that's interesting about this drawing is it was drawn in August 1812. So after the, the, uh, the prizes, the trophies were took back to London, this was drawn and published. And so it, it, it puts, a, you know, an end to these stories about 
three eagles being captured at uh, at Salamanca and all of that. Yeah, it does get bandied around, doesn't it? The suggestion yeah. that one of them just gets ripped apart because they think it's gold. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well the other thing that uh, you know uh, belies that is in the French records. So here's a nice. Can we just stay with that a second? Um, the um, the the you you just said that the other thing that belies that is is the French records. Just just expand on that. I, I will in a minute in a okay. few minutes. I, I just wanted to illustrate how these banderoles were used. Okay. So this is from the Funkins uh, uniform book. Obviously, the guy in the middle is carrying an eagle with the eighteen twelve to fifteen flag on, rather than the one we're interested in. But you can see that the the second and third eagle bearers are carrying the banderoles to defend. The, um, the eagle, that's their job. And you can, this shows the, uh, the taking of the, the 62nd um, uh, eagle by uh, the light companies of uh, Leith's uh, division. Uh, neither of these, I mean, Krista's got, done an excellent rendition, but neither of them shows the, the second and third eagle bearers uh, that were present. And uh, the importance of this is that um, the, if you read Pringle's correspondence, the guys who actually took the flags uh, um, were from the three different regiments that made up the, uh, um, uh, the light company battalion that was put together from Leith's uh, um, uh, first brigade. And Pratt is one of those uh, uh, those. Uh, People and what is apparently what appears to have happened is that they they took the Eagle Party intact. One regiment went off with the Eagle, another regiment went off with one of the banderoles, and Pratt went off with the, the other banderole. Now Pratt's role subsequently got blown up into taking another Eagle um, and uh, the Eagle of the Twenty Second. But he didn't. Uh, it's that's uh, a clear myth. What happened was this whole eagle guard was taken prisoner, and it and as should have happened because the eagle guards, the second and third eagle guards, are there to defend the eagle. Uh, they're not going to run off and and leave the uh, the eagle bearer on his own. So yes, they all they would get uh, both sets of these would get captured. And I, you were asking about records. If if you after the battle, they they, they there are records recording in, things like where the eagles uh, were. There's a specific column uh, that says eagles lost to the enemy. And uh, this one shows the uh, uh, the page that has the 66th line and the 101st line, and. There appears to have been a clerical error because it says that the 62nd didn't lose an eagle, but the 101st did. Well, we know it was the other way around. Um, Shari, who is the great expert on French flags, uh, actually talks about a guy called Daltpole seeing these trophies in London. And he claimed he saw the eagle of the 101st that had been captured at Salamanca. Well, we saw from the, the diagram I've just shown you, the eagles didn't have their flags on them. So you couldn't tell which regiment it was other than from the caissons on the, uh, 
uh, on the Eagles themselves. And the, the case on of the 62nd didn't have a number on it. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't possibly have seen anything that he he assumed it was the eagle of the 101st, presumably because of this clerical error, but it wasn't. It was the eagle of the 62nd, as evidenced by um, uh, the reports in Pringle's correspondence. So that leaves us with the eagle of the second, uh, the the uh, 22nd, um, which is up in Lancashire. Uh, while the 60 seconds in is in Chelmsford. And the Eagle of the 22nd is in Lancashire because Pratt was assumed to have taken it. And this is from a blog post I did, which I called The History of a Salamanca Myth. We all like a good myth, don't we? Oh, we uh, myths busting on this show. Yeah. And uh, this is a, a citation. I What I did was I went back through all of the records trying to find out when this story about Pratt taking the Eagle of the 22nd came about. And the interesting thing is that Pratt never claims it. Uh, it's not in the history of, the, uh, of his regiment, the 30th, uh, in neither of the histories of the of regiment, the 30th, do they claim that he, uh, he, uh, he took this Eagle. And what, what happened is in... 1912, a guy called Fraser wrote The War Drama of the Eagles, and in it he said, the Eagle of the 22nd was captured by a British officer of the 30th, Ensign Pratt, attached for duty to Major Crookshanks, 7th Portuguese, a light infantry Casadori battalion serving with the 3rd Division. That's what he said. And this is where the Ensign Pratt story starts. And it's why, why in 1947, when the Eagles were distributed uh, to the regiments, they went. He went to the thirtieth, but actually, none of it is true. Um, we know from Crookshank's own statement of service uh, that it wasn't Ensign Pratt. It was. Uh, you think you got troubles with pronunciation? Capital Geronimo Pereira de Vasconcelos uh, of the twelfth uh, Casadores, and. Pratt was never attached to the Portuguese. So, as I say, the, you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about repatriating museum um, uh, artefacts. Uh, the, uh, the Eagle of the 22nd should be on that list. It should be in Lisbon. There is a thought for... <laughs> there will be some arguments about that, uh, I'm sure. But yeah, okay. I, I think uh, the interesting thing is if you go back and trace the history, where does it come from? It only, and I think the uh, Garland. Uh, I know Carol Deval turned up Garland's letter, which claimed that that Pratt went through the camp with a French eagle. No, he didn't. He went through the camp with a with a French banderole. Important difference. Um, just a bit, just a bit, yeah. like handed from the hands of the emperor. So, the next part of it is to talk about the the Fanians, yes. uh, and um, they're interesting for a lot of reasons, and not least of which is Shari, who's the great expert on French uh, standards, says that the these uh, Fanions in the colours that I've uh, uh, talked about came about too late for them to officially be in the uh, peninsula. 
and uh, so their their presence in the peninsula has, has not been reported. Um, until but, you look at until you look at that, that exactly. That's exactly what I was about to say. But we know that they must have been because why? Otherwise, why is this guy in London drawing them in in August eighteen twelve? Correct. Correct. So. If we look at these, the white fanion, and uh thing about the fanions, which I think is very distinctive, is they have no writing on them. That was the that was the uh that was the uh, directive. And because they have no writing on them, as Shari says, you can't exclude the fact that the the regimental colonels would just make them up. Just get a bit of uh of white material, stick it on your spear, and that you've got a fanion. Uh so they're easy to be made. And uh, so we then asked, well, where did the white fanion come from? And um, if we look at the regiments that lost more than 50% uh, at Salamanca, there were the 66th, the 22nd, the 62nd, and the 101st. Of these, the 62nd and the 101st then lost more than 75% of their men. Of the second battalions involved, only the second 101st was not in the order of battle in September. Because what happened to the French is they kept their level of veteran troops high in their service battalions just by disbanding destroyed battalions and sending the men into the into the remaining battalions. This happened at Villa Muriel and everywhere. And so the chances are it's much more likely that that uh, second battalion, White Fanion, is from the 101st. And uh, so, sorry, just to make sure that I've understood this rightly on the basis that and I'm reading what you've um, written again, folks can't emphasize enough to fully appreciate everything. You're not only going to want to hear the rest of this, but go look at it on the YouTube channel to double check these these bits of information that are coming through um, on the, the screen. So because they lose so heavily at uh, because the 101st lose so heavily at Salamanca, effectively by September they've what been merged into a, a single battalion, and That's, yeah, they'll have been. they I mean, I know better what happened to the uh, um, to the 66th from Villa Muriel, but and I'll come on to the 66th. The the battalion cadre gets sent back to the depot, and their remaining soldiers get distributed amongst the field battalions that are still there. So. Um, so when you look at the orders of battle for the French, uh, there are uh, some significant battalions missing in uh, in September and October when I was interested in Pavilion Muriel that were at Salamanca. And the second, 101st, is one of them. Uh, it could have been one of the other second battalions, could have been, um, but uh, most of these battalions would give up their, their flags uh, only in duress. So my... My vote, if I was a betting man, I'd bet it was the 101st, but it could have been the 62nd. Um, uh, we don't know. And they also, as you say in this extract, um, they also lose their jingling Johnny, which quite often I see po people post as, oh, look, here's an eagle being taken. And it yeah. really gets my goat. I'm glad because um, it gets mine as well. <laughs> they're, they're, I tell you what really irritated me, actually. I was in the, um, the Sarko military interpretation center and they've got this label up saying french eagle and you know what it is it's a jingling johnny 
Yeah. It's not an eagle. And you look at it and you sort of think, but you're a, it's not quite a museum, but it's an interpretation centre. They're, yeah. they're just way off the mark. Well, I think these sorts of mistakes with Google are unforgivable. <laughs> you know, there are ways people... Google would tell you that's not what it is. No, exactly. There are ways you to take go a photograph in. of it and put it into Google. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's not that hard to do the research and, and get the right interpretation. Okay, so let's, so let's the, progress the green, flag. The, the green flag. Now, one of the things I did was I, I, I went through War Flags, which is a book of illustrations of the, the, all of the standards that were in the, um, uh, in the chapel, the guards' chapel and all of this. And in there you find this picture of a plain green flag, and they label it East Indian flag presumably because it's got a fluffy bit at the top. Uh, but the interesting thing is it has it has no markings on it. Um, my contention is that's a 5th Battalion Fanion and probably the one captured by the 11th foot uh, at um, Salamanca. So we have to look at, well, what are the 5th Battalions at uh, Salamanca? <laughs> <laughs> next question because um sadly the the order of battle is is not seared into my memory no um, well, there were three fifth battalions uh salamanca two of them were in mccoon's division and one was in the in ferry's division uh the fifth 26th so the easy option here is to say well it's the fifth 26 isn't it because that was in ferry's division however of these three battalions, uh, if you look at the losses, give you a clue as to what happened next, the 5th 66th disappeared from the order of battle and uh, was, um, uh, was replaced, his card sent home and replaced by another battalion at Villa Muriel, whereas the 5th 26th and the 5th 82nd survived in fact if you these are fortigues uh, figures uh, the first of august uh, uh, account suggests the fifth uh, 26 hardly lost any men so whether that's right or wrong is another matter uh, but my my the point i made in my chapter was you have to at least consider that the fifth 66th of mccoon's division is the one who lost their fanion to the 11th foot and if I was going to rub it in a little bit, is that if you look at the standard deployment of the, the battalions in the divisions, uh, the 11th foot would have been on the opposite end of Ferry's line to the 26th linear. So I think it's a question that I'm prepared to pose without saying, yeah, this is a given. But I think the, the, the bigger question is we now know that these fanions were a thing in the peninsula, which is a, a novel, uh, a novel finding itself. It's a nice thing to come out of this research, isn't it? So, and I guess the uh, you know to finish the whole point, we go back to our friend McCune. Um, this is the conclusion of my chapter. Glory is fleeting, but it is more so when your commander in chief. Cast you as the full guy 33 years after your death. However, General Division Antoine Louis Popon Baron de McCune, 
his bravery, nine wounds, 28 years' service to France. If not, his skill as a general will be remembered so long as the Arc de Triomphe stands. Yes. Um, <laughs> so really, firstly, I'm, I'm impressed by the, the class of the writing there. Uh, that's a nice way to, to wrap things up. Um, but there's my brain is hurting ever so slightly. It's been a long time since I've recorded a podcast as a host and had to think this much that my brain has hurt at the end of it. But you've achieved that. Um, so congratulations, because um, it's rare that my brain has to work quite this hard during a, a recording session. My chapter in- I do. I genuinely do. I don't have a copy of Gloria's Fleeting, which oh, is well. an embarrassing admission um, for the guy who's supposed to be asking all of the pertinent questions um, on this show. Um, Gary, the thank other thing you. that's uh, interesting is the, um, uh, in preparation for this, I, uh, while uh, Professor Muir's book is the best book on Salamanca, this is my favourite one, which I read, Wellington's Masterpiece, which mm-hmm. I read 30-odd years ago. And so I thought I'd get it out and look at it. And it's the... It's the only account that seems to implicate, it seems to understand there was an issue about uh, um, Leith's division capturing an eagle from the 7th division rather than from McCune's 5th division. And because they make a point, was the light infantry must have been off to the flank somewhere. And... uh, uh, but it's an important point that, uh, that I think goes to my argument that the rush of fugitives from Tommy Ayres and in the, in the face of the cavalry swept McCune's division aside and they got away uh, um, uh, to fight another hour um, while Leaf's division busied themselves rounding up prisoners from the 7th, including the Eagle. Uh, the they took of the sixty second. It's it's only when you lay something out quite as clearly as you've done over the course of this that you do start to sit back and think more and more about the inconsistencies and go, why hasn't somebody noticed all of these problems before? But this is the point of research that is properly good. I know that's a really inelegant way of phrasing it, folks, but to do decent research involves you having to look at the accepted view sit down and go does that make sense and all too often than i am hugely guilty of this every historian who's ever picked up a pen is guilty of this you trust other historians particularly if they've got a reputation you trust other historians to have got it right and the danger is that through regurgitation of people who are respected scholars you end up with situations where things get missed and so the difference between a history and a good history of the period is those people who do what Gary's done in this particular case study. You sit down and you forensically pick this apart and go, somebody might have said it. That doesn't necessarily mean that I can trust it. Um, folks, Gloria's Fleeting um, is an edited collection. I forget if it's Andrew who was the editor for that yeah. one. It's available at hellion.co.uk. Um, go and get it. Uh, unfortunately, I can't give you a discount code for Hellion, but it's a very reasonably priced volume anyway. So, you know, Christmas is coming up. Ask for Santa. 
to drop it into your stocking. Um, Gary, you will be back at some point. Um, probably not in the too distant. You're not getting a choice in it. It is happening. Um, probably in the not too distant future either um, to discuss some of your other work. But on the basis that you will have applied that same level of care and attention to your research, I think folks are going to want to read your other publications. So Wellington's first battle, that's Boxtel in 1794. Who published that one? I did. K Shop Publishing. So okay. self published. I've got a few in the garage. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> and presumably if people get in touch with you yeah, via Twitter. Or by Amazon. It's on Amazon. Okay. It's, oh, fantastic. Yeah. Okay, you've got all of that nailed down. If yeah. you're a devotee of what I consider to be the wrong war, which is basically every war that's not Napoleonic, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, but if you're interested in World War One, the men behind the memorial is, who's that one with? Is that? When, Again, when it's when I did it, it, it what I it was a, a side project. The in the village I lived in at the time, there were twenty four guys on the memorial, and uh, well, started out as a series of village uh, parish magazine articles. I I researched each one of them, where they came from, how they died, and uh, and it, it, it uh, I put it together with a, a friend in the village um uh to raise money for the uh for the church basically um oh that's fantastic uh, so it's there it's it's a nice uh it's not something i would normally do but because uh, uh, like you my there is only one true war indeed indeed uh, <laughs> and talking of said one true war um wellington at bay villa muriel 1812 we're doing an interview on that that that's it's just a given we're, we're going to sit down and discuss that uh, we're probably going to do an interview on Boxtel as well because why not um, and last most recently but by no means least throwing thunderbolts which is um, your wargamers guide isn't it you know you, yeah. you were saying earlier or in the first episode if you're listening to this on the podcast that you know you come at this through wargaming gotta say this is a safe space in which you can confess to that nobody's going to judge you <laughs> we're all we're all devotees of painting plastic figures we've all got that bug well, I think the I think there's a serious. I mean, one of the things that the about. Uh, I mean, there are all types of war gamers. I'm at the nerdy end, um, and I think the advantage of war gaming is that you actually have to put physically things on the table. You have to consider time and motion because that's how the games work. And uh, so things that uh, you, if you just read the history book, you might skip past. As soon as you're trying to lay it out as a scenario for a game, you're saying, well, hang on a minute, what's this five-hour gap doing, um, for example? And you are painting flags, so knowing what they are is, a, is important, and albeit nerdy in my case. Hey, um, you're talking to somebody who styles themselves as the Napoleon nerd, um, <laughs> albeit not as baby face as I used to. <laughs> uh, so um sadly age is catching up with me people um but throwing thunderbolts is on the war of the first coalition 1792 to 7 i know we have chatted about the possibility of a, a mini series uh, on the show about that because i'm going to be quite frank and honest and say my war of the first coalition knowledge is nowhere near as good as it needs to be um and we haven't covered it in any sense on this show until now so we will um leave that sort of tantalizing threat well there are um, only 280 battles to to, to consider <laughs> that's 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 minor we, we can do it in like 20 minutes surely <laughs> um, 
so there you go folks plenty more to look forward to but christmas is coming up you've heard the quality of gary's forensic approach to this you're going to want to go and buy some of his work gary an absolute joy to talk to you thank you so much for opening my and the listeners eyes to this i've got lots of thinking to go away and do um and i need to reach for the maps of salamanca battlefield quite frankly and and start reconsidering all of this thank you for joining us um, and i look forward to having you back here very soon Brilliant. thanks for the opportunity zach really enjoyed it folks if you're new here remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back much love to all my patreon supporters and shout outs to my mentioned in dispatches patrons rob griffith brendan teeling Beatrice de Graaf, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Indiana Fats, Stephen Gillen, Rob Coughlin, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Noah Fink, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Ulrich Ducado, James Fluick, Roger O'Donnell, Natasha Hobday, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, David Graylick, Ted Andrews, David Malitsky, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgey, Reto the Sci-Fi Fan, Adam Green, Tim Day, Sam Moore, Wyatt Pollock, Armin Darwin, Carol Dixon-Smith, Paul Gasek, and Roland Shark. And the Admirals, John Haynes, JC Kaiser, Mike Guest, Liam Telfer, Todd and Laird Campbell, Graham Swidenbank, Rachel Stark, Mark Duckers, David Maxwell, David Priest, Graham Callister, Sean Sullivan, Stephen Ashworth, Dan Hazelwood, Kate Walcombe, Steve Carter, and Clemens. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars Pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Don't forget, folks, if you want to enjoy 20% off Glorious Fleeting, the book upon which um, much of this uh, podcast is based, or rather the chapter, the book that has the chapter upon which this podcast is based, um, Glorious Fleeting is available from hellion.co.uk. And if you go direct via their website and on checkout, type in the discount code GLORY23, G-L-O-R-Y-2-3, you will be able to enjoy 20% off of the book. Enjoy.